And in his, uh, in his words, faith without works is as good as dead. It's dead. It's good for nothing. And the reason why he said that is because true, genuine, active, living faith cannot help but be active. It cannot help but be loving towards others. And James, I, I was so careful, trying to be careful, that he is not, and I am not, and we are not arguing that works must be added to faith in order for God to love us. It is by faith alone, but it's that faith, that genuine biblical faith, that will inevitably be characterized by deeds, by works, by stuff. And now James is going to shift a little bit, and he begins to argue that words are some of the most powerful works that we can do, that we can accomplish. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, the guy who mocked Jesus, the guy who didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was, until a resurrected Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, showed up and said hi to him, he didn't believe him, but once he met Jesus in that way. He describes himself at the beginning of this letter as the bondservant of the Lord. Not bondservant of my bro. Bondservant of the Lord. And we know that a bondservant is a servant that could go free, but has chosen to continue because he is so in love with his master. And James spends more time than any other writer in Scripture speaking about the tongue. And there are Probably lots of reasons for that, namely common sense. He's figured out as a pastor that that's where most people get in trouble. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, which I think is where everything kind of reveals itself as the beginning of all wrongness and the beginning of all things that we can understand today, we see that the first sin after eating the fruit, although not described that plainly, was really a sin of speech where Adam begins to slander the name of God, blaming him for sending Eve, who gave him the fruit. And he says very plainly, the woman that you gave me made me do this, basically. And in the first chapter of his own letter, James says, be slow to speak. Be very slow to speak and quick to listen. And be slow to anger, he says. And then in the very end of the first chapter of James, he says, if you want to be truly religious, the first thing he says is control your tongue. The first thing. And also, serve the widows and the orphans and those who cannot provide or protect themselves. And stop sinning. Don't be stained by the world. And so chapters 2 through 4, after that statement of what truly is religious, kind of plays that out. And last week we saw, he's talking about, okay, really doing stuff. And now he's into chapter 3, he's specifically speaking about the tongue. And this book reads like a book of wisdom. Like there's these little this statements of wisdom, much like Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs speaks a lot about the tongue. And it pits different people against themselves. You have the wise man and the fool. And they are both often identified, like who's who, by what comes out of their mouth. And in particular, if you read Proverbs 10, but also Proverbs 12 and some others, in Proverbs 10, you see that a wise man controls his mouth. And he is both blessed because he does, and he blesses other people. That's what the wise man does, Scripture says. And then it talks about in the same chapter, the fool. And 
actually describes him as the babbling idiot, the babbling fool, nonstop mouth. It's the guy or girl, the person that basically you can tell they're a fool because they never shut their mouth. They're always talking. And when they do speak, Proverbs 10 says that their words create ruin and violence and slander and confusion. That's how you know a fool. David, the king, King David, who wrote majority of the Psalms, not all of them, but a good portion of them, was so conscious of the power of the words and so kind of, I guess, fearful of it in a, in a reverent way, prayed that God would help him not to become a fool. And he prays in Psalm 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. This is a new prayer, I think, for my children that I'm going to teach them. Because like, they can't control themselves. And I should probably pray, obviously, for myself. But like, here's what we're going to pray tonight. Lord, set a guard over so-and-so's mouth so he doesn't hurt his brother with his words. David is very aware that he needed help. I don't know how many of us have actually prayed that, thinking that we're strong enough to restrain this thing. And with a few words, as many of us have probably seen, if we look at just a very cursory, quick look at history, with just a few words, whether it be a speech or just even a few phrases, wars can be started and stopped. Men can influence the economy today with a few statements. They go on and talk about their company and then suddenly stocks are going crazy because they've said something positive or negative. Just a few words. you got guys losing their jobs as sometimes political leaders or pastors or others because of things that they say. You have men and women destroying relationships of which some of us may have experienced because of words exchanged. You have hearts being broken and built up. You have fear being created or comfort being provided. Words are works. They are verbalized actions that do something once they leave our mouths. I, don't, I think we believe actually they're quite harmless. And it's like, it's not that they're always harmful, but they're doing something. Now, Christians, I believe in particular, and I say Christians because if you're not a believer, I don't blame you for not knowing this. Christians don't have an excuse. Christians woefully underestimate the power of the tongue. We'll talk about pornography. We'll talk about alcohol. We'll talk about gambling. We'll talk about all these iconic sins that are bad. They're, they're evil and they're destructive. Don't get me wrong. And we need to avoid them. But we don't talk like that about the sins of the tongue. They're, they're generally ignored. And the truth is, Jesus says that it's our tongues, it's those things that come out of our mouth that actually are most evident of the genuineness of our faith and what's actually in our heart. And it makes sense that a lot of people, in an attempt to uh, pretend to be righteous, make kind of restraints or lists as the greatest demonstration of the fact that they are holy and righteous. And I don't think, again, that's overall everything wrong. But we make lists oftentimes believing that they're going to accomplish more than I think they're capable of. We, uh, we believe, and I think, I say we because I believe this for a time, that being religious means that we stop using dirty words, 
and we stop cussing, and we use good words, clean words. So trying to figure out which words those are, because the Bible doesn't provide any lists of words. And in my own experience, I don't need any bad words to make someone feel bad. Give me your list, and I will destroy you without those words. That's what my, I was, I didn't swear at all. I just didn't grow up in a house that used swear words, didn't grow up in a house that used a lot of dirty jokes. And I just grew up in a house that, you know, I couldn't even say the word shut up. That was a bad word. But I became the most painfully witty destroyer of people that I've ever met. Well, I met a lot of those kids as I taught high school and went, I know who you are. You are me, okay? But the reality is, we don't need bad words. And the funny thing is, or not the funny thing, but the truth is that sin, you start making your list and you've misunderstood sin, I believe. Sin makes our tongues sinful. Okay? So that everything we say can, in fact, be covered in sin, even if it doesn't match whatever list we think is there. The thing I think we forget is that in Genesis chapter 1, which is a beautiful description of creation, as is in Genesis chapter 2, but in Genesis chapter 1, we have God speaking words. You have Him speaking the first sermon ever preached, and He is having an effect by creating something. There's light. Let there be this. Let there be this. He's speaking. And do we really think or understand or grasp that as being made in the image of God, we have the ability to create? We think, well, we can build buildings and stuff. Isn't that amazing? We create every time we speak something. We speak something out and something is created in the heart. of. And sometimes we see it as we destroy or we build up. I've experienced it. And I've had it, I've experienced it myself and what I do and, and what I receive. But he gives us this ability, this tool that is powerful to create, just as he created. And redeeming our tongue, taking our tongue is, is understanding that glorifying God with our tongues is less about particular words and more about how we use those words. It's less time, it's spending less time thinking about what we should avoid and more time about asking ourselves, what are we trying to accomplish here? And being conscious of that. And in short, it's about realizing that our mouths are connected to our hearts. Let's read James chapter 3 and hear what he says about the tongue and, and break it down because it's powerful and powerfully convicting because he doesn't have nice things to say about it. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. My favorite verse in the Bible. For, and I'm speaking about the tongue. I mean, this is like such an incredible irony. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, 
setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, James, as he launches into this, what, is, what really is this holy diatribe on against the tongue, he begins with warning teachers, of which he himself is one. And there are other passages in the Bible, that if you read Hebrews 5.12, I believe, is, is one of them, that rebuke people for not being teachers yet. And unlike the, the writer of Hebrews, is just, who's trying to say, look, speaking to immature, older believers, saying, by now you should be teaching. In this case, I think James is actually warning people not to be eager to be teachers, formally in some sense. Preachers. It's a lot of pressure to be a preacher, I'll tell you that. I, if I take it seriously. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of preachers that don't. And I'm not going to, you know, speak against because I don't know their heart. But there's a lot of people who preach, get their you know, sermons online somewhere and just preach whatever they hear someone else preaching. And the dishonesty about that is that as I sit and preach, I have to actually preach to myself. This has to hit here before it can hit anywhere else. And so if I haven't actually spoken, and God hasn't spoken to me about your own tongue, Sam, what are you saying every Sunday morning? What are you saying beyond Sunday morning? That's major. I am speaking for God. There's a lot of pressure there. And should be, mind you. People should not be eager to be teachers because they have students. They have people listening. Unlike a our day today, and I only know this from my own experience as an English teacher, a lot of people look at teachers as like that pity blot. You know, like, I'm really glad that you're doing that. Kind of like the guy that, you know, cleans the sewer type of deal. Like, I'm really glad we're paying you to do that, right? Me, I love teaching. I enjoyed it. But I used to ask my students, like, who wants to be a teacher? There weren't many hands, okay? And I'd say, well, why don't you want to be a teacher? Oh, I hate kids. I mean, they would say that. I think, really? I feel the same way. You know, it's amazing. They go, really? Oh, yeah, I couldn't handle high school kids. This is terrible. I was like, so you understand that this is strange. I said, why else? Well, you, you're poor. So you're poor. I said, okay. I said, I, I said, honestly, teachers, they get everything else everyone else gets. It just takes a little bit longer. I said, I mean, that's, there's no really difference. But that was it. It was like, oh, I'd never be a teacher. That's. In James's time, a teacher, specifically someone in the church, but a teacher is someone who's respected and honored and someone to aspire to be today, not so much. Okay? And I think James here, well, he does warn here that, look, you're going to be judged more strictly. And I don't think that means we're going to go to heaven and be like, all right, all uh, non-teachers over here and teachers uh, over here and have like a separate test. We're like, you're evaluated based on how well you did. But at some level, teachers, preachers, their job is to speak. 
That's their job, to speak words, to go out and, and something happens. And they're held accountable for the words that they speak because people, as I said, are listening. And I am in some way exposing myself to an immense danger here, unlike other teachers or any other person might be in another occupation. There's a weight to it, and there should be a weight to it. I used to go home, I kid you not, I've gotten over it by now because it's really a place of pride or despair that has nothing to do with Jesus. Every Sunday, I'd go into a depression after a sermon. Like the first year, oh, I should have said this. Shouldn't have said that. Why didn't I? And I'd read something like a proverb that day. I'm like, oh, why didn't I read this before? You know, stuff like that. A depression. Be terrible because there was a weight of, okay, I just said this is what God speaks. And there was a weight there. It was hard. And I think that's probably why James, and this is where I go, James like, take it up with the Bible. Be doers of the word. Don't be doers necessarily of what I do. Though Paul says that, they're always directing people back to Scripture. Don't argue with me. Talk to the Bible. Talk to God. So that's the responsibility of a teacher. If a preacher or a teacher of God's word doesn't direct you towards Scripture, and it kind of goes off in their old cuckoo place, run like crazy. Because it has to go back to the word. But I think James is also talking to um, all of us as teachers. We're all teachers to someone. We all have family, friends, co-workers who actually listen to us and respect us as we espouse all kinds of opinions about all kinds of things. And we do speak for God with others a lot. And sometimes we're very flippant about how we speak for God. And I think, though, he's probably denouncing James's in his context because all these poor people in particular are suffering, being oppressed, being drugged into jail. All kinds of things are happening. And there are teachers that are rising up in this context and starting to teach, like, you need to fight back. And actually some violence breaks out because of it. I think he's denouncing probably those teachers saying, look, you better be careful what you say. But he should be speaking to all of us because we all, whenever we share an opinion, take a stand or speak some truth, we are all teaching. And there's always the potential that students are learning the truth or falsehood. The question is, what are you teaching your bride or your husband? What are you teaching your children? What are you teaching your family? What are you teaching your friends? What are you teaching your coworkers, directly and indirectly? What are you modeling about what a Christian is, if you are a Christian, to people who are watching. Because you are teaching something. I teach something about pastors, about Christians, about Damascus Road Church every time I speak. You speak for Jesus if you claim his name every time you speak. And that's why there's so much complaint. Christians are hypocrites. Well, there's some truth to that. And they need to take it up with Scripture and not base their definition of a Christian on them. But we can't afford, we can't afford to be careless about something that brings life or death. Proverbs 18.21 said it perfectly. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's weighty. We can't afford to be careless about the words that we speak. Or the words that we should speak and are silent about. Now, far from sinless, James includes himself. And he says, look, we stumble in many ways. And then he goes on to say that 
A mature Christian controls his tongue, but good luck. I mean, he basically says, it's nearly an impossible task. If a man does it, he's perfect. He's complete. Which, in my sense, is you're sitting with Jesus dead, so, you know, good luck. It's hard and nearly impossible. But I think the spirit of what he's saying is that controlling our words will enable us at some level to control our lives. And it's not only evidence of spiritual maturity, it might actually be means to it a little bit, to spiritual maturity. So, verse 3 through 5, he gives these beautiful illustrations. He's like, let me tell you about what can happen and the goodness that can come from it, or at least the power that it has. He he uses an example of of a horse and a ship. And the horse is is directed by this very small bit, this, this piece of metal in its mouth that's connected to the bridle, and I probably will mistake because I'm not a horseman, but you'll see. And then you have the ship that has sails and is blown away, but a little teeny rudder is directing it. And he compares that to the tongue. It's such a small part of the body, and yet it has so much power to control the course of one's entire life. For better or for worse. And so, although if you watch me walk at a distance, you'll see I am one of the most bow-legged individuals in the world. Now, I will mind you, you know, although it might look like I'm born to be a cowboy, I have not been on a horse. I think I'd be really good on a horse. Like, you know, hurricane winds would come and I'd be like, you know, can't move because I'm just like stuck there. But I will say, just in defense of all bow-legged people, find together that the fastest people in the world are generally bow-legged. So, I'll just leave that there and move on. But I had to ask some friends of mine who are in our church, and I asked some others too, like, I'm not a horse person. I need to understand a little bit more how bits work. And so I just did. I said, okay, tell me how bits work. Tell me what you know. And they gave me some great information about it. And I'm going to share some of that with you. What they said was uh, that this, this small bit, because I'm not going to talk about the ship as much. I just want to talk about this one. Otherwise, we could be here for a lot longer than we probably should. But it's the means of control for the horse, and it controls really all the movement of this horse, including stopping. And the bit is used, or, or pressure is applied as you, as you pull on it in different directions, obviously, but back, to train this horse to obey commands. Now, what they said was the application of the bit isn't, because I'm always thinking, you know, like, oh, come on, you know, because that's just how I am. That's what I think you have to do. But it doesn't have to be so strong. It can be more forgiving or more severe, depending upon how teachable or how stubborn the animal is. Okay? Take it up with the horse people. So, here's the, here's, here's the quote, okay? And it was beautiful. And I, I just quoted what, what um, they told me, because I thought it was just a, a beautiful illustration that brought so much color to it. So I just stole it. And it says this, quote, When a horse submits to it, this bit, They learn to completely accept and at some point forget its presence, which was interesting. Listening to its master's verbal and physical cues, which is touching the legs on either side of the horse to turn it, squeeze it to go faster, remove the legs to stop, etc. So, as well, through the use of certain metals, the bit can actually bring pleasure to the horse, inducing slobbering and licking, which means, I guess, that the horse is happy. Never knew that. thought they were just like my dog, Ambrose, which, you know, he's like, slobber everywhere. But no, it means that they're happy, and that bit can actually bring pleasure to it. However, even the most well-behaved horse will at times rebel against the bit. And if a horse can lock its teeth on the bit and drive their head down, they'll try to blunt the effect of the bit. 
And it said, he said it will take a very strong rider to regain control of a horse when the event such as that happens. Well, that gives a lot more color to this picture of a bit in the horse's mouth. That it can, in fact, first of all, be more forgiving or, or more stronger or powerful, depending on how teachable the horse is. It can, be, it can actually bring pleasure at one point when it's beginning to be turned. And in fact, it becomes almost natural for them, and so the bit's not even used as much. I mean, the intent's kind of like, you know, the bit is kind of like that bell with Pavlov's dog where you're training it and eventually you don't have to use the bit as much because the relationship between the horse and the rider is so, you're like, oh my gosh, this is getting like kind of Jesus-like, right? You begin to see it. So in either illustration, whether it's a boat or, or the horse, you have three things at work here. You have the animal, the ship or the animal, either one. You have this bit that's directing it, or the rudder that's directing it. And then you have the rider, or the captain of the ship. And the question isn't whether there's something to direct, and in our case it would be a life. We, we have a life to direct, a life to live. And the question isn't whether there's something directing it. In this case, it's our tongue or the bit. It, it is directing it. I think the question that we start resting on is who is writing or who is directing this life? Who, is who or what is governing when you speak? Or what you speak? Is there anything governing it? Is it just internal to you? Or is there something outside of you that is authoritative over what you speak and therefore dictates what you speak? Because if our intent is to glorify God in all that we do, and that being the tongue, if the chief end of man is to glorify God, and so the tongue, God gave me a tongue so that I might glorify Him. That might come through rebuke, or it might come through encouragement, because both are loving. But the question is, is it with the intention to glorify God? Or is it to glorify myself or another aspect of creation? Because those are the only two options. And how do we change that? Because I think most of us, our intent when we speak is to glorify ourselves. And I'll prove it. But the question is, how do we change that? And I think it actually takes training. Like you have to train a horse. And it's training that might actually be painful for a while. Have you ever thought in a conversation about subconsciously the words that you are speaking as you are speaking them, wondering what impact it's going to have on that individual. I don't know if we have to think, because it takes a lot of effort to do that. It's easy just to kind of like, whatever. Notice what 1 Timothy 4, 6 says, and actually a few verses after that. Paul, writing to a young pastor, Timothy, about how to lead his church, and he says this, if you put these things before the brothers, and he has said a bunch of other things, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We are so convinced, I think, sometimes to like, God, just change me. Let go and let God and just kind of like, change me. I'm not changing. God must. And we take no responsibility for our change. No responsibility for having a disciplined life. There are things you can do 
to discipline your life that God's not going to come in and go, you know what, you shouldn't look at the computer anymore, so I'm going to destroy it. I mean, I guess he could, but I don't see it happening very often. Man, I really struggle with looking on the Internet. How about getting rid of your computer? That's too difficult. Well, then, then be quiet. Because you're expecting God to come in and, and remove certain things. Now, it is empowered, but those desires come from God. The power to overcome sin comes from God. But we have a role to play in that. And he says, that's why Paul can tell him, train yourself for godliness. And he goes on, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we just let go and let God. No, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God. There's the motivation. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Verse 11. Summary. 11 and 12. Command and teach these things, Timothy, to your church. What does he say? Let no one despise you for your youth, you young buck of a pastor. But set the believers an example in speech is the first thing he says. Set an example in speech. How you speak is numero uno, Tim. Number one. So we begin, I believe, if we take that horse's bit description, we begin to submit to the Lord's direction, the Lord's governing of our words. With an attitude to glorify God, it will be painful at first because it's not normal for us. It's normal for us to not even think about it. But at some point, it actually, I think, can become pleasurable. It becomes the desire that we want to do, not because we don't want the pain, but because we have a relationship with the writer. And it's our desire to please him because we love him. Now, he goes on in verse 5 here and really further on. He talks about, real quickly, unbridled tongue. What does an unbridled tongue look like? He says it boasts of great things. Boasts of great things apart from the Lord, which is basically self-glory. Let me lay these out for you. Because when we rebel with our tongue, not only does it hurt, but our lives grow out of control and they become misdirected. But they come misdirected in different ways. We each struggle with something. I know someone in here, all of us struggle with these things. But maybe not all of them, but something will speak to you. It did to me. And though I think sometimes we go, well, you know, I can say what I want. That feels free, but it's the worst thing for us and the worst thing for those around us. Because it's similar to a ship without a captain. That wouldn't be a very good idea. The ship would certainly be free. Free to run aground. A horse without a rider, oh, look how free it is. And it's not fulfilling what God intended it to fulfill as a workhorse as transportation, as many other things. So what does unbridled tongue look like? It's all self-glory. First one, some of us suffer with self-indulgence. What does that mean? Perversion. You like dirty jokes. You like talking about things that are glorifying to sin. And we do it flippantly. You don't even think about it. I did a sermon one time called Redeeming Language. I read it. not that good. But you should read it because it's got some good stuff in it. And one of the things it talked about, the one thing it came out was, how do you know if a joke is dirty or not? The thing about it is, like, we all know a dirty joke. 
we're unwilling to call it a dirty joke. There's like ones that are extreme, but then those ones that right there, I'm like, oh, what's the, uh, it's not harming. Come on, what's a little joking? And don't get me wrong, God jokes in the Bible. There are some hilarious, you can read that sermon for that too. There are hilarious stuff in the Bible, some stories that will make you laugh. But, as we indulge, as we speak perversely, whatever that means to you, ask yourself, is how I'm speaking right now glorifying sin? Pretty good test of whether you should be speaking that or not. Some of our self-analyze, I should say, we're judging. And that's cynicism. We're very critical. We have a critical spirit. We speak criticism nonstop. I'm excellent at this. To my shame. We have something we don't like, and we speak critical. Some change happens, we speak critically of it. We speak critically with everyone we speak with. We are judging constantly. Some people are self-defensive, and that comes out in two different ways. One is gossip, where we basically, um, because we feel bad about ourselves, it's all a matter of insecurity. Because we feel bad about ourselves, we find someone who's dirtier than us and exploit it. And we talk about it with ourselves, with our friends, on Facebook, wherever. We're self-defensive. We have defensive spread rumors, innuendos, false truths. Some of us don't aren't self-defensive with gossip, which is kind of passive. The active form of self-defensive is violent. We get angry and we spew out anger. We say things with the intention of hurting people. And we say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. No, you did mean it. That's the problem. You're trying to hurt that person and you need to confess that you're trying to hurt them. Not that you didn't mean to hurt them. No, you hurt them and you did an excellent job of it. Now confess that you were wrong in doing that. Some people are self-promoting. Why do we lie? We lie because we are trying to look better in front of others. That's why we lie. We promote ourselves. We boast about ourselves. We praise ourselves. We brag about ourselves because we want to feel self glorified or praised by other people. And then some of us are the opposite of that. We're self-deprecating. We beat ourselves up. It's like victim talk. I'm worth nothing. I'm worthless. We play the victim constantly. All of those are self-glorifying. And I'll tell you a little bit what the God-glorifying antithesis to those things are. But all of that, we all struggle somewhere there. And, and James doesn't speak to bridling as in just, shut up, just be quiet. Silence. No, bridling is not, I just want you to be quiet. It's directing. We don't control the tongue by muzzling it. We don't control the horse by just locking it away. Although, maybe at times it needs to be. But the ship is meant to sail. It's meant not meant to stay in the harbor. The question is, where do you want to go? Where does God want you to go? Where do you want this person you're speaking to to go? What do you want to accomplish by speaking to them? And then you have to be really honest as you're learning how to bridle yourself. What are your natural tendencies? I'm not going to expose every father wound I have here, but I'll expose one as I've learned this. is that My dad was never an initiator. If I wanted my dad to say, I love you, I always had to say, I love you first. I love you, I love you. If I wanted a hug, I had to take a step to him. Because he would never initiate a hug with me. Now, as he's gotten older, he's done that. It seems to happen for whatever reason as, as dads get older. Maybe that hasn't happened to you. By God's grace, it has to me. But he was never initiated. Well, I find that my tendency is I am not a natural encourager. 
I am very naturally critical, really good at it. Comes, I don't have to think about it. I can go, that's why I don't like you as a person, like this church, like anything. Done. But it's harder for me to see the grace. It's harder for me to go and to tell somebody, especially an adult, man, I am so proud of you. But when I've done it, and I even did it recently with a man, just very few words, and he broke into tears. I was blown away. Just, I was like, these are just words. But the power that was in those words to build up and to encourage, that's not my natural tendency. And I have to compensate for that. That's how I need to direct myself because I'm naturally going the other way. But even men or women, men and women, you have to understand, you have to bridle yourselves a different way because the sin of men, according to Genesis chapter 3, is that they were silent. Men got to be bridled in such a way they start speaking. Silence is their sin. They tend to not speak, not lead, create voids, and guess who steps into it? The women. Not that women can't lead, but they shouldn't be taking the place where men are failing to lead. That's where the failure is. Not in women stepping up, although that can cause its issues. But men's tendency is to be silent. Men need to be teachers, trainers, rebukers, speakers, heralds, proclaimers of truth. That's what men are need to be bridled to do and directed to do. Women, no offense, although you'll probably take some offense, your sin is not toward silence. And that's in, it's, if you look at Genesis chapter 3, the tendency for women is to step up where the men have created a void and to speak when they shouldn't. The reality is, let me prove it, guys don't have a gossip problem. Hate to break it to you, okay? Guys, when they see someone else, they don't even register half the time. And you know what happened to so-and-so? No, and I don't care. You want to go do something? Sure, all right. I mean, we don't care. Women have the ones, are the ones that generally have a gossip problem, a respect issue. Like, for example, when you're in a circle, now men, don't, don't get me wrong, men make this mistake also. But women are quicker to speak and slower to listen. Men are slow to speak. They don't listen either. Okay? But you have to understand the tendencies of men and women, of you. What is going to be your predisposition? Is it going to be to speak or to be silent? And what are you raising? All these things, it's training. And you have to understand what kind of breed of horse you are. Because they're different. And need to be trained differently. And if you don't, if you just go, well, I don't care. I'm just going to speak. Okay. James in verses 6 through 10 tells you what's going to happen. And it's dark. Here's what he says. Verses 6 through 10. He describes what is this destructive path of this unbridled tongue, comparing it to this uncontrollable fire and an untamed beast. Many of us, I think, have experienced the power of an unbridled tongue by someone or maybe we're responsible for that unbridled tongue. Have you ever read um, Proverbs 12, 18? It says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Where you're hasty in how you speak. And I confess that I have been guilty of this. And I don't confess in such a way like, Well, I know I'm prideful. I confess it in that I have spoken to people wrongly, to my children, to my bride, 
the people in our church. Why? Because I was rash. Thinking I'm throwing a snowball out there and it's a stinking hand grenade. What's wrong? It's just a snowball. <clears throat> there goes your head. Right? That's a problem. And the Bible says rash words are like sword thrusts. James denies and says it is a lie to say that sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's a lie. Sticks and stones break bones, and words destroy lives and hearts. And we've all experienced that at some level. I bet y'all can go through the Rolodex of growing up, and you remember Mrs. Belvin in second grade who told you that you couldn't do something or you would never amount to something? You see it there. Or that individual, that relationship, you have a list and you go, I remember this. And it changed the course of your life so much so that even now you probably put up some sense of defense to know I am never going to experience that again. And I'm going to actually keep you out of community. You know, I'm not going to, because I spoke one time, I shared my heart and they hurt me. Never again. Boom, walls up. We all have our list because words hurt. According to Scripture, unbridled, uncontrolled, unrestrained, unmeasured words hurt and they leave a mark. Of the seven deadly sins, which I don't know if you can name them, but if you want to read them in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, three of them have to do with the tongue. Of every New Testament list of sins that you can find, it always includes sins of the tongue. And here's what James describes it as. The tongue is a fire. Now, there's lots of fires. This isn't a little candle we're warming at talking like flamethrower fire. It is a fire, and it's one that is so full of unrighteousness, it's called a world of it. The tongue, not can be, like the tongue could be this. The tongue is, or has the power to stain the whole body. We often think words just kind of go out and it's, you know, no big deal. What happens, you go, all over you and all over them. You get stained. In other words, as you speak words, whether blessing or cursing, it is destroying or building up your own life. So if you're a a gossip, king or queen, you are actually hurting yourself in addition to hurting others. Stains the whole body. The tongue can set on fire the entire course of life. It is set on fire itself by hell, which I don't think is a good thing. The tongue can start a forest fire by one spark. One spark, one word, one phrase can burn millions of acres. Right? That's the description. The tongue is never resting. The tongue is full of poison. The tongue cannot be tamed. Wow. And we are so careless about how we speak. And he doesn't give us much hope, unfortunately. I mean, when he says the tongue can't be tamed, it's like, fantastic. I just learned how bad this thing in my mouth is and that I can do nothing about it. But I don't think James is suggesting that it's hopeless or that it can never be controlled, only that our work is never, ever, ever, ever done. Until the day we die, we will struggle with the tongue and sins of the tongue. And we can't make lists of words, thinking that will protect us because that just makes us legalist. And you can't do nothing because that just makes you self-indulgent. 
We have to discern every moment, always, every context, every conversation, wherever we are, what is this going to do? And submit that to God. Now, a real quick word about technology. Facebook, Twitter, email, chat rooms, whatever, texting even. There are so many venues right now that makes communication global and instant and permanent. We have to be even more careful. People become different people behind a keyboard. Do you ever notice that? So brave. Stuff they would never say to someone's face. Text messaging. I mean, I see stuff that's posted all over the place. I'm like, if I was sitting before you, you would never speak that way. A man sent an email to our church one time just destroying one of our pastors. It wasn't destroying the pastors as much as telling us how much their sermon was bad. I won't tell you if it was me or someone else. This pastor. And I ignored it for a month. I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to say, be patient, be good. And then a month later, got another email. And it wasn't what they were saying. I looked past the packaging to see if there was any truth to what it was saying. It was the way in which it was said. And I challenged this. I said, if we sat down, you would not speak these same words. And if you did, I'd be really concerned about your understanding of grace. Because we have a different understanding. Email is dangerous, and we don't think about that. And again, guilty. There's plenty of people recovering burn victims from my flame-throwing emails. Okay? I've gotten better by God's grace. But there are those. And I confess that those are wrong. But that's what we have to do. We have to confess that I cannot tame my tongue or my fingers that are connected to my tongue. And we have to repent from the idea that we are directing ourselves and commit all of our ways and take every word captive to Jesus Christ. And ask ourselves, every time we're going to write something, is this glorifying to God? Is it glorifying to God? Or is it glorifying to myself in some way? In the last few verses, 9 through 12, he ends his holy tirade with the sobering truth that our hypocritical tongues speak both blessing and cursing. He says, we bless our Lord the Father, and with it we curse people made in the likeness of God. In other words, we'll sing a Sunday song to our Savior and then slam somebody for Satan in the next breath. And if some of us would kind of survey our last week, you did that this morning. Sang some songs to Jesus, if you sang, guys, if you sang. But then you were critical, gossiping, self-indulgent in some way with your language, with the same tongue. And at the heart of not controlling our tongue is, is more than just a failure to love people, although that is what is most manifest. We could, we could leave here and just go, you know what, I'm going to work harder to not say mean things and just say good things. And I know that that's not, in essence, wrong. I think many of us are like, I'm not going to say bad things and we'll fail to say the loving things. And you're like, I'm going to say loving things. And either way could potentially lead us to this moralistic balance where we start going, well, I'm a good 
Christian. Jesus loves me because I talk nice. And we miss the point. James says here, one of the, I think, most powerful verses in this, all this section, which is strange, the half of section 10 here. He says, My brothers, these things ought, that word ought, these things ought not be so. Why ought they not? That ought not be the way. Like, that naturally shouldn't be how things are. Why? Because you believe, brothers, the gospel, so you say. You love Jesus, so you say. We're not expected to direct our tongue so that God will love us more, thinking that, you know, if we don't swear or don't curse people, that He will love us. We ought to control our tongue because of how He has already changed us from within with His Word. A bridal tongue, a tongue directed by the Lord Jesus, is evidence of one who is truly in love with Jesus. You may not be able to tame it right now. You may be in training. You may be kind of messy with your bridle. But the desire to actually think that way, with an attitude, governed by the attitude of Jesus, where I'm going to speak that which is loving, whether it be rebuke or encouragement, must be what drives us. It is fruit, he says, from the good tree that he has made you to be. And the only reason you wouldn't have those desires, the only reason you wouldn't be able to bridle it, because he says the power in you can do that, is that you were never a tree to begin with. Fruit should be produced by a fruit tree. And he says, with the spring, can it possibly spring forth from the same opening fresh and salt water? If God has made us a new spring, no, it can't be. I don't curse anyone. We should not curse anyone because in doing so, I deny that I am in fact worthy to be cursed. We deny that. We deny that Jesus hung on a cross, was mocked, perverted speech and made fun of, was gossiped about, was lied about. People pridefully boasted that he was the Savior, save yourself. And the Bible says He became cursed and a curse so that I might be blessed. And that is what we are to proclaim. That's the truth of the Gospel we are to proclaim. The only fruit I have to offer is that Jesus is in my heart. And our words, therefore, become the words of God. And let me show you how that works. Because when we speak to God to begin with, our own self, when we speak to God, we speak through the cross. When we speak to ourselves, we speak through the cross. When we speak to our friends, we speak to the cross. When we speak to our family, we speak through the cross. When we speak to someone who speaks sinfully to us, we speak through the cross. And what does that look like? Well, an unbridled tongue is self-indulgent self-glorifying and perverted, but a bridal tongue, instead of perversion, confesses the beauties of God and proclaims the beauties of God's way. We don't mock and joke about marriage. We don't mock and joke about men and women. We glory in the fact that God is good and God has created and God has His own designs and He is beautiful. 
We have to replace it. You can't just stop. We don't analyze and judge and are critical when, when changes happen and things we don't like occur. Instead, we speak of our trust in trials, our hope in God and His faithfulness. Though it doesn't seem like we know where we're going or things have changed, we speak that God is faithful and He is in control. Just like the cross. And instead of self-defense where we gossip and we spread rumors because of whatever insecurities or violence, we speak of grace, we speak of mercy, we speak of God's restoration, we speak of God's love. When someone speaks to us about someone else's weaknesses, we rebuke them. We rebuke them and we praise the beauty in whatever person they're talking about. That's what we do. We don't just sit there silently. And we don't just speak recklessly. When we hear people self-promoting and telling lies about themselves or self-praising, we confess our weaknesses and we praise the goodness of God. And those people who are self-deprecating, who despair because they feel like they have nothing to offer, we speak of God's love and we speak of God's sufficiency. That He has made you something beautiful. That He has made you more. Don't speak against God's workmanship. There's something unique in you. There's something to be proud of. There's something beautiful in that. And we build that up. Why? Because Jesus died for you when you were a sinner. Not when you were clean. And Paul talks about that. He's like, I would boast in my weaknesses that the glory of God might be revealed. That's what drives us. The words of God, in closing, that speak power into, I say the words, I should say, that speak power are the words of God. And there is somewhat of an incomplete saying that's being perpetuated, especially in Christian circles. And you see on those like silly signs at churches that have like, you know, funny sayings. Some are pretty good, but they're kind of, you know, funny sayings. And they always say, preach the gospel and occasionally use words. I don't know if I believe that. I do think that we need to preach the gospel, and James is committed to that through our actions and through our love. But words are where the power is. It is the word that saves. Faith comes by hearing and not by the word of God. So you can make people comfortable as can be. You can serve them food, but you've never speak the word to them. That's where salvation is. That is salvation. When we speak God's word, we don't just compete with the sin of the world with our actions. I, I think that's a good thing to do, but we speak the word of God because it's the word of God that creates and builds and destroys that which needs to be destroyed. The word of God is where the power is. Words are works and they are active and they have effects and the only words that have true purifying power are God's words. Period. And that's what I pray we will bridle our tongues by the power and grace of God to do with each other, with ourselves, and with our entire church. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank You for who You are. I recognize that you are God and we are not. That you are in heaven and we are but creations. 
can't possibly speak your words perfectly. I pray, Father, that you will help us, that you will bridle these tongues, that you will help us to declare your glories. Help us not to be self-indulgent, Father, but to proclaim the beauty that is you and all that you have done. Help us not to be self-deprecating, Father, and deny the good work that you have done through your Son to save us. I will pray, Father, that you will help us not to be self-praising of ourselves, but to boast only in the cross and to identify and recognize our own weaknesses. I pray, Father, that you will help us not to lie and to gossip about people, but to look and to see the beauty that they have within them, that image of you that is in them. Lord, just bridle our tongues. Through our communion this morning, Father, remind us that you cleanse us from sin to redeem our tongues, to glorify You in all that we do, in all that we speak, whether it be to ourselves, to our friends, to our family. Father, break us and humble us to be careful about the words that we speak. For in our mouths, Father, Your Word says, is life and death. And I pray we speak life or we remain silent. And for those men in here, Father, who have a tendency to be silent, I pray you will have them speak. You will help them to speak truth, to rebuke, to encourage, and to love with their words. And I pray the same for women, who it seems it's easier for them to speak even words of love, Father, but pray they'll be more measured in their words. May you be glorified by all that I say here, all that we say here, and all that we do here in this church, built by you. In your son's blood we pray. Amen.